we talk about the ideas facing the Jewish people and Israel. We make decisions together. We pool our resources. We can give away more money than we could on our own. To me, that's the ultimate fun. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we are speaking with Felicia Herman. Chief Operating Officers of Maimonides Fund and Managing Editor of Sapir, a journal of Jewish conversations. A longtime Jeff and member, Felicia joined Maimonides after 16 years as Executive Director of Natan, a giving circle grant-making foundation focused on supporting Jewish and Israeli social innovation. During the COVID-19 pandemic, she also served as director of the Align Grant Program of the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund, JCRIF. Felicia sits on the boards of the American Jewish Historical Society, Dream Street Theater Company, and Natan, as well as on the advisory board of two initiatives launched by Natan, Shomer Collective and Amplifier, which she founded and is now part of the Jewish Federations of North America. Felicia holds a PhD in Jewish history and an MA in Jewish women's studies from Brandeis University. And she's a proud recipient of JFN's JJ Greenberg Memorial Award. In our wide ranging conversation, Felicia and I talked about Jewish history, giving circles, the importance of listening to diverse opinions and much, much more. So take a listen. Hi, Felicia. Great to be talking with you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. Let's start a little bit by your background. You studied history. I studied history. I studied religion undergraduate. Among other things. History among other things. Yeah. So I studied religion in college and went to Israel for my junior year of college and loved it. And it changed the whole frame that I looked at the world through and then went to graduate school and uh, got a PhD in Jewish history at Brandeis. And as I was finishing my dissertation, which was about the relationship between the Jewish community and the film industry in the 20s, 30s and 40s, my husband and I moved to New York and Um, And I always say uh, he was working in finance and I was working on my dissertation, mostly talking to my dog all day long and eating leftover burritos. And somebody sent me a job posting for a job at the Steinhardt Foundation. And I had not heard of uh, Michael Steinhardt. I had not, I knew nothing about Jewish philanthropy, but I knew that I could go to work for Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. So I went to work for Yitz and JJ, and that changed my life even more. And then from there, I went to Natan, and I was at Natan for running Natan, uh, which is a giving circle focused on funding Jewish and Israeli social innovation. Did that for 16-ish years, and now I am the COO of the Maimonides Fund. Okay, we'll talk about all these different stages, but I'm, I'm very interested in something you said. You said that going to Israel sort of changed a little bit the outlook by which you look at, I guess, at the Jewish experience. So can you can you say more about that? 
Well, I grew up in the middle of New Jersey, went to public school. I really liked Hebrew school. I think I'm one of the only people on earth who mm -hmm. really liked Hebrew school, but it's, I think, because I'm dyslexic and the school that I started going to for my dyslexia when I was very little, um, they basically forbade us from allowing me to learn Hebrew. So I went to Hebrew school, but I only had, I was only allowed to do Jewish studies. And I don't know, maybe that's a secret to making people and more people like Hebrew school, but I loved it. And I loved it because it, I felt like it was teaching me something about myself, um, which sounds very selfish, but it really, I found it to be very moving. You know, then I went to Wellesley College and I don't think I was living in a, in a Jewish frame. And when I went to Israel, it was like everything shifted. And from then on, I just saw everything from a Jewish lens, not a religious lens, um, but just sort of putting the Jewish experience at the center. And I remember thinking actually, when I was coming back at the end of my junior year, like, was I even gonna be able to be friends with the same people who right. I was friends with when I left because they weren't even Jewish. So. But did you manage to put the finger on what, what in Israel caused that? It's just the environment, it's just the, you know, living the history, what, what was it? I think it was more just the experience of living in a, in a Jewish centered place than anything necessarily that I learned. Although I also learned, you know, it was not only a focus on Jewish studies, you know, in terms of the content that I was learning and also some Jewish texts and did a little bit of learning and had all of these Jewish experiences, you know, going to Shabbos dinner at different places, celebrating the holidays. It was like, uh, you know, living in Jewish space and Jewish time for the first time ever and, and feeling like that really just touched something in me that was pretty essential. And I haven't, haven't left since then. Yeah. Which is, it, you know, what I say regarding Israel is that it changes your way to be Jewish because it transforms your universe of associations into a Jewish one. Meaning it's not like your, your cultural associations become Jewish. And that is very powerful from an identity point of view, right? Yeah. You may not learn a lot, but the context sort of nobody teaches you to be uh, an American, you just live in a context and you become right. one, right? And, right? and the same, and with being Jewish, like only in Israel, you get th that same idea that the context can transmit something, something very powerful. So then I guess that brought you, you know, this idea of Jewish space and time and brought you to Jewish history. Yeah, I, I wish I could say it was a very intentional and thought out, but Again, it was just something that I love to learn about and really felt like, it, again, it was t teaching me something about myself and my people in my past. Uh, I actually spent a year before, between college and graduate school at Yeshiva University Museum mm. on the staff there, which was also a really eye-opening experience of just seeing Jewish culture and Jewish material culture and Jewish art. And then from there went to Brandeis and really had an extraordinary experience, especially with the teachers that they have at Brandeis, the Near Eastern and Judaic Studies professors, American studies, film studies, women's studies, uh, American history. And I really was able to really indulge a love for learning the other thing that I did when I was there uh, was I, one of my part-time job was at the American Jewish Historical Society, which was an amazing part-time job. It was back when the Historical Society was on the Brandeis campus. And, You're still involved with them, aren't you? Yeah, which is funny. So it kind of like comes, comes yeah, around in a circle, nice way. Yeah. I'm, now, I'm now on the board here in New right. York. Um, it's at the Center for Jewish History now. 
But but my job was to create finding aids to the collections of women in the archives. Right. And I was just, I had free reign in the archives and could just wander around and poke into boxes. And that sense of treasure yeah. is the same at, at the museum, but also in the archives, a sense of like our treasure is sitting here on these I, shelves I, and I just get to look at it and touch it. It was amazing. I totally feel that. It's like yeah. dorks of the world unite. That's right. <laughs> We have that in common. We're dorks. Uh, uh, yes. I, I used to do that at the JDC archives when I worked there. And it was yeah. also a, like a candy store of like interesting stuff. Why Jews in the film industry? Why precisely that period? So I started on, my thesis was going to be about gender and the synagogue. So I was studying with Jonathan Sarna and Jonathan mm -hmm. Sarna was the most amazing advisor to have because he just wants to know everything. So actually I would go to conferences and, and hear um, people who are interested in gender or women's studies complain about how their advisors didn't support their work or they couldn't study what they wanted to study. And I never had any of that with Jonathan. He just wanted, wants to know everything there is to know and welcomed all lines of inquiries. But as I was working on it and I would sit in archives in the basement of Central Synagogue, and even though, again, it was like that treasure experience, I'm looking at the, the minutes of the sisterhoods from, of personal service from the 1890s, and it was just extraordinary. I also felt at some point, like seven people are going to read this dissertation. And, <laughs> and it just was like not enough kind of to keep me going for the long slog that a dissertation requires. And the other thing that I had always loved and that I was studying at Brandeis also was film. And so I sort of put together the Jewish communal piece and the film industry in ways that I didn't know would be relevant to me and to my work later on. But now all I do is think about the Jewish organizational world. Yeah. And what I was looking at in the dissertation was, was the creation of things like the Jewish Community Relations Council of Los Angeles and how they related to the film industry before films came out, after films came out, and whether they were explicitly about Jews or not. The, the brilliance of looking at the 30s and 40s, 20s, 30s and 40s, is that things did not have to be overtly Jewish for everyone watching the movie to know that it was Jewish. Right. So the life of Emil Zola, which was made by Warner Brothers, was uh, really about the Dreyfus affair. And it's made right. in, now I forget, 37, 39. Everybody knew what they were watching in 1937 or whatever it was. They were watching a, a film about Nazism. Yeah. But the critique of the film is that it only uses the word Jew once and like in writing And, but it didn't need to. And, and something that is really beca has become really important to me is that you can't, we can't be judging the past by the standards of the right. present. Right. And that's what earlier works had done with films like that. It said, oh, these Hollywood moguls, they all assimilated and they ignored their Jewishness. It's like, no, the whole milieu that they were working in was just completely different. And maybe without them and without that thing that now looks to us not assertive enough, even, you know, maybe without that, Jews in America wouldn't have been integrated in the way they, they are. There was so much anti-Semitism in the 30s. Right. Couldn't make the movie the way that people would want it made today it would actually literally be dangerous, right. not to mention that no one would go to see it. Like when you compare those movies, right, and how Jews were portrayed to the image of the Jew in the film industry today, are they things that are very different, things that are the same, things that you think were better before? 
That's a great question. I hadn't thought about that. I did write my master's thesis on the image of Jews in the films of Barbara Streisand. Now I think, how do you get away with these things? But that's what I wrote about. And, you know, in that talked about the films in which she is identified as Jewish, kind of, you know, either more or less so like funny girl, you know, she's Fanny Bryce, uh, all the way to Yentl, obviously, which is her most Jewish film. I mean, we definitely are more overt, obviously, about the Jewishness now than we were then. But I don't know. I'm not sure I have anything wise to say about the comparison. I will say that what I love about the films of the past is that it's so much less obvious. You actually have to do a little bit of work to understand why Jews were portrayed in the way that they were. Right. So so the last film that I look at in my dissertation was uh, Gentleman's Agreement. Mm-hmm. And you have in that not, you know, the main story is Gregory Peck pretending to be a Jew and experiencing anti-Semitism in 1947, um, the immediate post-war period. But you also have this Jewish character, his friend Dave, who's played by John Garfield. And I actually have a picture of John Garfield up here in my office um, because he, it, something about him really inspired me. The, the role that he plays in Gentleman's Agreement is one of just a, a guy who is, he's Jewish, but he's an American. You see him most of the time in his army uniform. um, And he's trying to explain anti-Semitism to Gregory Peck and just like gives us a great, a window into how it felt to be an American Jew in the forties. And he says like, we just, we just know anti-Semitism is there and I get into fistfights over it. And, you know, what are you getting so worked up about? Maybe one of the signs that we're more confident about our Judaism is that Jewish characters in movies are not, all good or all apologetics or like sure. Jews are more yeah. human now. Like the more, yeah. like you have yeah. bad guys that are Jewish and good guys that are Jewish and conflicted and messed up. And, you know, and I was, I was actually um, very taken by that movie by uh, Agnieszka Holland uh, in darkness hmm. where there's a group of Holocaust survivors and she goes a place where, where nobody had gone before, which is, she follows that group of Holocaust survivors. So some of them are great people and some of them are really bad. You know, like yeah. they, they betray each other and they do this and they... And I think that's very interesting. We're not afraid to say that we're human. You mentioned something really interesting before, but going through minutes of organizations and whatever, and this is something that you and I discussed in the past, which is, uh, will the researchers of the future have that wealth of material that we have from the 19th and the 20th century. I, I Sometimes I feel that there's a ton of stuff that we're not keeping, like yeah. that we're not recording. And like, I don't know, yeah. like the minutes of Jeff and I keep them, but I don't, I don't know if they're going to go to an archive somewhere. And 50 years from now, 100 years from now, it may be really interesting to see what the funders were thinking in, you know, during COVID, for example. It's one of the reasons why I'm on the board of the American Jewish Historical Society and the conversations that you and I have had, which we need to now pick up again, um, is the importance of funders saving their papers and, you know, foundations, individuals, but also making sure that that the organizations that they support and the Jewish organizations generally are saving their papers. It's so easy for us to imagine that everyone will always know what we know, you know, but of course it's not the case. And when I look at the past as another country, when I look at, you know, minutes from even 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 
it's just another country that I can't understand without that kind of documentation. And it's it's critically important that we think that way. I think that some big legacy organizations understand that. So you mentioned yeah. the archives of the JDC. I know the ADL has you know a huge yeah. archive that's sitting in its offices right now. UJ Federation of New York gave its papers to the American Jewish Historical Society. And some foundations are starting to realize this too. The Bronfman Foundation, the Abichai right. Foundation. Abichai, yeah. yeah, they gave their papers to AJHS as well. But I really want to start a, a real yeah. groundswell around this because otherwise people won't understand the world right. that we are living through. But And I think you mentioned COVID. I think COVID has really helped. I mean, God forbid we didn't need such a thing. But it helped because it helped people understand in a very visceral way that every day that we are living in is a piece of history, that we are living through historic times all the time. And several funders actually came together to help the AJHS and other archives and museums start collecting material relating to COVID. The AJHS also did a series of oral histories, which I think will be fascinating when they come out of Jews in different places, different roles um, in the Jewish community and outside of them talking about their experiences during COVID. But all all of that is so important. And it may be more difficult because I don't think we, we know yet what to keep and what not to keep in the millions of terabytes of yeah. information yeah. And, digital and emails and these. And like in the past, there was a book that was the, the right. book of minutes and you right. send that to the archive. Today, what do you send? You send like your server, like, and how do you find the, you know, needles in haystacks, you know? Well, the good, the good news is, is that the archivists have thought about that. So right. we don't have to think about that, but when you, and part of, part of what makes it a little challenging to give your papers to the archives is that you do have to do some work with the archives right. to think through what actually gets, you know, saved and how, but they do have lots of thoughts on how to, how to turn this unbelievable glut of information into something usable for the future. So let's move from history to philanthropy. You mentioned your work at Natan that was trailblazing work, was really the, I don't know if the first, but one of the first Jewish giving circles and probably one of the first giving circles in the country that was so active and and so thoughtful about its strategy and its impact. Now, I always think about giving circles as the new face of the collective. Like you mentioned, legacy organizations like UJA, where philanthropy was collective. Right, so you had everybody put money in a box, as it were, and the community distributed that money based on an idea of where the needs were or what the priorities were. Fast forward to the 21st century, people become much more individualistic, not in a bad way, much more individualized rather. They wanna see philanthropy as a means of self-expression, as a mean of making their own personal impact in the world. And that brings us great philanthropic innovations uh, but on the other hand, you kind of lose a little bit the collective dimension of philanthropy. Yep. And the giving circles, which is smallish groups of peers coming together, doing philanthropy together, may be the bridge between the individual and the collective. It's not the old collective, let's put yep. all our money in a box, but it's not either the individualistic approach of, you know, I'm going to be doing my own thing. Yeah, I Totally agree. I am a huge advocate for giving circles on so many fronts. What distinguished Natan, actually, I can give JFN credit for this. What distinguished Natan is that when they hired me, 
I was coming from another foundation, thought of myself as a foundation professional, and then started to go to the Jewish Funders Network conferences. And I really always thought about Natan as a foundation. It's just a foundation with a really giant board where no one's related to each other is one way of thinking of it, like a giant family foundation, we're just not related. The other way to think about it is a very teeny tiny federation where everyone sits on the allocations committee. So that in your model, what you were just describing of the federation, a handful of people actually do get to make the decisions about where things go. They're also supported by a massive staff of professionals. In a giving circle, generally, you have next to no staff, and it's just the people around the table making the decisions. We did, Natan did have me as staff and you know uh, other folks too, and now it has Adina Pupko who succeeded me as executive director. So it is a nice balance of actually having somebody whose job it is every single day to think about this, but to have the decisions being made by individual funders. And I think that the, the ability to do it collectively brings so many benefits. It makes you so much smarter. You know, one of my other mantras always is about viewpoint diversity. It makes you so much smarter to be in a conversation with other people who may or may not agree with you, but who come at life from different perspectives. So I, before I was executive director of Natan, I was a member, my husband and I were members of Natan for a year. And I was working at another fund, at a Jewish foundation. So theoretically, I was a person around the table with quote unquote expertise. But I found my mind being changed by each person who would speak around the table. We right. wound up kind of making that our unofficial tagline for Natan, change my mind. Because each person would say something so smart that was to, you know, from some other place and political diversity and religious diversity and geographic diversity and you know, industry professional diversity, all the bouncing of different ideas like that off of each other just collectively make you a lot smarter. Another really important impact of Natan or of Giving Circles, sorry, is that they are a community. And right. especially, again, as we come out of COVID, you know, we need as many opportunities for people to make community and probably to make new kinds of communities than the ones they had before. But, you know, the folks in Natan are, are some of my best friends. I've grown up with them and, you know, our kids, you know, go to each other's bar mitzvahs, things like that. And the last bit of it, and it relates to the community part, is that it's just fun. So when Natan was created, it was the early 2000s. And the idea was that there were all of these young-ish folks, you know, sort of in their 20s and 30s living in New York who were making a lot of money in the finance industry or in other industries for whom giving wasn't fun. <laughs> it was, right. you know, you go to a dinner and, you know, you write a check to somebody's thing. And that might be fun for a little while. It has a shelf life, those, those dinners, right. for, for a lot of people. A lot of people want something more substantive. Hmm. So this is instead, we sit around a table, we drink, you know, we have a glass of wine or whiskey or whatever. We talk about the ideas facing the Jewish people and Israel. We make decisions together. We pull our resources. We can give away more money than we could on our own. To me, that's the ultimate fun. So talk right. about dorks of the world unite. Like that's my yeah. other <laughs> my other fun is you have to give money. Uh, you know, knowing you, um, I'm sure that you made some study of not just how you felt giving those yeah. grants, but about the effectiveness of those grants in the field. That from the outside, I mean, I know of grants yeah. that Natan did that were very successful in, in philanthropic terms, but it does the effectiveness of giving circle grant making compare, or how does it compare rather to foundation grant making or to federation grant making? I remember years ago, somebody, we were in a conversation about giving circles, probably at a JFN conference. And somebody in, in the 
conversation said, well, all that sounds great, but that's not really strategic grant making. And that was a helpful comment because I, I agree and I disagree. I think that these giving circles, again, depending on how they're led and run and what their purpose is, because some of them are just there really just to have fun and you throw $10, you know, into the pod. Yeah. And, we did a pop-up giving circle in a Jeff and conference. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. Or even it's just like you get like, a you know, your, your friends, you just get yeah. together, you throw in 20 bucks and you talk about something that, you know, you read in the news and you give money to that at the end of the night. That is not strategic grant making. Right. But even at its best, Natan couldn't have been as strategic as a foundation that is investing huge amounts of time and, and money and resources and brain power and being strategic and evaluating outcomes and, you know, it's just not what it's there for. So right. we, I think, were able to to live pretty happily in a middle ground that got us more towards strategic than not. We have, you know, the grant committee starts every grant year by trying to figure out what it's interested in and looking at the grants from the year before and really having a strategic conversation. But we're also dealing with new people every year. You know, the group changes. It's like an amoeba um, we have a lot of consistency from year to year, but you have a new person in and that changes. So foundation boards are not like turning over their people every single right. year or constantly onboarding. That would also hamper their ability to be strategic. But, but that's maybe that's why giving circles could be good for the whole area of, you know, uh, innovation and, and yes. generating new ideas. Because on the one hand, they, what I say, less strategic because they, they don't have that depth of time in terms of, yep. but that precisely gives them a new way of looking at, you know, a different projects. After a bunch of years at Natan and seeing the impact that Natan was having, not just on the grantees, but on our members, we started looking around to see who else was doing giving circles in the Jewish community. And then right. beyond that, even be outside the Jewish community, we created Amplifier, right. um, which is now has been acquired by JFNA. Um, that really is focused on not just giving circles, but collective giving innovations and philanthropy. But one of the things that we learned in the research, you know, in reading the research on giving circles is that, yes, many of them are focused on innovation. Many of them are focused locally. Most of them are pretty small. I mean, in America, right. most giving circles give away like less than $1,000. I think that's right. Or maybe it's, yeah, yeah I think it's less than $1,000. So Natan was an outlier in that as well. In all of these cases, even in Amplifier, we would say to people, you know, form should follow function. What are you trying to right. create here? And what we had in Natan, what we still have in Natan, and I'm on the board, so I get to keep saying we, um, <laughs> is a group of people who are good stock pickers. You know, they wow. work in finance or they're lawyers or in media, and they're just good analysts of, of the information that's in front of them. And new ideas and the, and the new ideas, they sort of resonate or or they don't, you know, and kind of close to the ground and, one of the the articles that I have that I started and never finished <laughs> was about how finance people operate in philanthropy different than people that came from manufacturing. Like the, the first generation yeah. of, of Jewish big philanthropy, take somebody like Max Fisher, for example. Like yeah. they came out of the manufacturing world. They, yeah. You know, and and they thought about organizations and processes in manufacturing terms. And you just said, like people that come from finance, they basically look at companies all the time and make bets on them. And that has to somehow impact the way they do philanthropy as, as well. Absolutely. And maybe there is less attention to process than it was in the old world and more entrepreneurial sort of 
attitude and maybe you know we need a little bit of both eventually in the in the thing 100 i totally agree First of all, you mentioned the idea of community and the idea that many of these giving circles are small. I think that when we talk about Jewish identity, we don't always talk about the role that philanthropy can take in yep. building identity. Like I see it with the Jewish Teens Funders Network and Honeycomb, yep. Yep. that these kids are learning, are becoming quote unquote more Jewish by doing philanthropy. And I see that a lot of giving circles are ethnic or religious, like Latino giving circles and black giving circles. And I think we should, as a community, maybe we should look at how philanthropy can be a vector of identity building that we, we haven't looked at that enough. We see philanthropy as a resource, not as an activity in and of itself. 100%. You know, when Natan started, we called it a grant-making foundation. And only over time did we start to call it a giving circle. And the difference in the terminology really matters that a giving circle puts your mind thinking immediately of the members who's in right. this giving circle. What are they doing? A grant making foundation could be anybody, it could be, you know, a board, whatever, professionals. But part of the reason why we shifted the, you know, what we called it even was because it was so obviously having an impact on our members. To me, the impact we were able to have on the field, because we were focused on innovation, I think we had an outsized impact on the field, 100%. Right. But the impact that we were having on our members was what I was thinking about every single day. And the grant making was a almost a program through which we were able to educate our members through, I mean, it was really like an experiential education in philanthropy. I always say, and this was in my recent article in Sapir, which I'm also happy to talk about, um, not just that philanthropy should be embedded in everything that we're doing in Jewish life, precisely for this reason, because it is a vehicle through which we can engage people in conversation about Jewish identity, but also because it's an unparalleled way to learn about the world around you. So I think, for example, of Israel um, and the one of the things I've always been the most proud of in Natan um, is the way is our grant making in Israel, which was always focused on economic development and then social businesses and urban renewal in Jerusalem. It is such a phenomenal way into understanding Israel as a real and complicated place to read 70 grant applications from across Israel focused on like, here's a thing about the Bedouins and here's the Ethiopians and here's just Mizrahi Jews and people on the periphery and Haredi employment and who learns that way? You know, it's, yeah. it's extraordinary. It's so funny you mention it because like we, we facilitate a social venture fund, which is a, a giving circle that deals with the Arab-Israeli society in uh, Israel. And, and one of the members told me, I'm paying myself an education yes. in the field. Yes. You know, and, and that's what they do. They, they look at, you know, hundreds of grants a year. And they, when they analyze those grants, they need to learn about the issues and they become really conversant on these issues. And, and they become, more than they know about them, they become personally connected with them. That's when the identity, and we see it in teens and we see it in people over 60, for everybody. You mentioned something talking about Natan, which was the management of viewpoint diversity, which I think that connects with what we're going to be talking about in relation to Sapir. But how, how did you do it? How did you manage to sort of sit down with people from the left, the right, religious, non-religious, conservative, liberal? How does that work? And it seems to be something that we're not very good at lately. Yeah, I think there are a couple of 
a couple of things. I don't know that I could diagnose it exactly, but one thing is we gave people something to do. So you had to, at the end of the meeting, make a decision together about what we were going to invest in. You, you just had to agree on which organizations and how much money. You didn't even have to agree on why those organizations, what you liked about it. And I always think of this example um, from our Israel grant making. Um, we wound up supporting an organization that is of Palestinian women in East Jerusalem um, becoming more civically active, which is actually incredibly important. And we had people who supported that grant because they were on the left and just thought, you know, thought of it kind of as a human rights issue. People who supported it on the right thought about it as a security, existentially important for, you know, a united Jerusalem to have Palestinians feel engaged right. in East Jerusalem. That to me was the crystallization of what was beautiful about Natan is that it didn't, we weren't asking people to believe the same things, to agree on things that are really hard. We just said, we need to make a decision here at the end of the day. So so focusing on an, it on an outcome and a tangible outcome right. and one that they're personally, literally personally invested in, I think is really important. And we also, by the way, had people leave Natan over the years. I remember somebody who banged his fist down on the table, you know, about one of our Jewish identity grantees, banged his fist and said, this is blasphemy and then and never came back. So it's not like it works for everybody. But that's that's one thing is you give people something to do. And the other thing is we are a community and we're building relationships and, you know, you have drinks and you eat food together and you're talking about issues that, you know, you all care about. You're connected in different ways. Like most folks, you know, we're connected professionally, personally, philanthropically helps that we're kind of all in New York. You know, you bump into each other all the time. So really had a sense of like we care about each other, we like each other, so we know we're not all gonna agree and that's gonna be okay. The last piece of that is also that when I would recruit people for Natan, I would always say to them, and maybe this is the key, like a way of thinking about life in general, I would say not everything that you like around the table is gonna get supported right. and not everything that we support is going to be something you like. So you just have to be okay with whatever the percentage is right. in your head that's going to make you feel like it was worth it. You just have to be okay with that. But this is not 100%. Right. And I think that where we're at today in a lot of ways is like everything's got to be 100%. You're either with me or you're against me. If you say that other thing, it can't be that you have a moral stance that is different than mine and perhaps legitimate, just different. It means you're just wrong. And, right. and you're that's just evil, not wrong. You're just evil. Yeah. 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 You're now also involved in something that tries to promote viewpoint diversity and, and tolerance and civil discourse, which is SAPIR. But, but before going to SAPIR, tell us a little bit about the transition from a from Natan, from a giving circle, to back to a major foundation, to the Maimonides Foundation. It had an important middle step, which is the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund, right. JCRIF. So as the pandemic started, a handful of funders, Jim Joseph, Schusterman, Maimonides, um, the CEOs were talking and they said, wow, we have a massive crisis about to happen here in the Jewish communal world. I mean, they and they were talking to foundations, federations, CEOs, and they said, we have to do something about this. And they came together to, to create the Jewish Community Response and Impact Fund, which ultimately has, I think, eight funders involved with it. 
some in a no interest loan fund and some in a grant fund. And they asked me to run the grant fund. I kind of raised my hand because I realized like we have a massive crisis in front of us and I love Natan very much, but it's not going to be enough for me personally to feel like I'm actually making change in this moment. And I was lucky, lucky to know these folks already. And so raised my hand and they asked me to do it. And through that, over the course really of two years, I met with the CEOs of the foundations and the grant fund every week um, and then every two weeks to talk about the big issues facing Jewish community and to make really, um, in some cases, really substantial grants to try to mitigate the effects of the pandemic. And that just, it just opened a different kind of a world to me of philanthropy that, I mean, I think Natan has always punched above its weight. And then it was great to actually be in a seat where there was actual weight as well. And to see really the ability to have just transformational impact when you have really smart people and a lot of resources um, and the ability to really make change on a, on a big scale. So um, I started at Sapir, Maimonides was launching Sapir um, in January of 21 and they, of 2021, and they asked me to be managing editor. I'm working with Brett Stevens, who's the editor in chief, Um, And I just leapt at that opportunity, too, because it sort of took me back to this graduate school discussion we were having, you know, the world of ideas and realizing after all these years in the Jewish communal world that we need more vehicles for generating ideas. And you have talked about this a lot. um, That's my little obsession lately. I know. Well, you're right. We need to be talking about ideas. We need big ideas and bold ideas. Mm -hmm. And Part of, to get to the point of viewpoint diversity, you can't have big and bold ideas if people are afraid to say what they think. And I have found myself over the last few years, and I know a lot of people feel this way, of just saying like, how could this be America? Where, how can I be afraid of saying what I think? That that just sounds terrible. You know, that is a terrible state of affairs for Americans and, and for Jews as well. And so PURE was, is an effort to try to generate ideas and promote big ideas that really can have concrete impact um, for Jewish communities yeah. and to do so without being afraid of what people were going to say. My my dream would be to go back to a time like the late 19th century where Jews were arguing and writing and, and it was deep. It was acrimonious at times, but it, but it was deep and it was, it was ideas. People they right. weren't attacks like, you know, maybe they did personal attacks that, you know, it's not that we're so much worse than the previous, but, but there was a, there was a depth there that I'm, that I'm missing now in the, in the 140 or whatever number of character that Twitter yeah. allows. So I think that sort of initiatives like Sapir are really important because I think like talking about COVID, I think that one of the challenges we're going to find uh, that, you know, we're going to be facing in the post-COVID era is the challenge of meaning. And there's no meaning without thinking, without ideas, without theology, without that that type of philosophical conversations that we're not having. And it, that, that doesn't mean that they have to be academic. I think that the beauty of Sapir is that it brings the world of ideas to a middle point between the yeah. academic and the popular. Yeah. They're not op-eds, but they're not academic papers either. They're ideas that challenge you, but if you engage with them, you can get them, you can understand they're sort of approachable. But how do you set limits in something like Sapir? Because true, we like viewpoint diversity, but another thing that's happening is because in the name of viewpoint diversity, sometimes the most extreme positions end up hijacking the conversation. 
Well, we also talk about just the center and right. sort of restoring a sane center to Jewish communal conversations. Everything has gotten very polarized. So I know for sure that there are people who think that the things that we publish in Sapir are extreme. I think that's that's fine. We have a great team um, behind Sapir, and we're really looking for smart arguments that are reasonable and data-informed. And um, I know all these terms are, are a little bit subjective, like what does reasonable mean? But we're looking for things that people will actually be able to engage with. And right. as I'm editing pieces, I'm thinking about our core target audience is Jewish communal professionals, Jewish right. communal leaders. And if you put in something, I, I don't want people to throw it away because it seems really extreme. I, I, right. I think part of what's become the challenge of today is that the, I feel like the things that we're publishing in Superior are not extreme at all, but they appear extreme to other people. Like the goalposts have really shifted. And when right. we hear from readers about how much they appreciate Superior, and a lot of these people are CEOs of foundations and, and they're pulpit rabbis and they run federations and they run other organizations. And they're all saying like, thank you so much for just saying what I always, even if I don't agree with it, I know that this is a reasonable position. It's just, right. I can't believe that it's been off limits, you know? It's it's Talmudic in a way, because, you know, in the Talmud, very rarely an opinion is off limit. What happens is that you have to have reached that opinion following the standard of argumentation right. and the seriousness in using precedents and, and backing it up with texts and, and what have you. And my position always is, it's not the content, what needs to be controlled is the standard. Right, I agree. It's not, right. it's not that a Holocaust denial article is not receivable. I mean, of course it's you know, abhorrent in and of itself, but if it had a serious scientific backing, you right. would at least need to look at it, but it doesn't. Right. So that's right. why I feel totally comfortable to not include something like that because it's, it's factually wrong. So, I mean, sometimes by clarifying the standards, and I think that's what Sapir does, it sort of sets the standard. Within those standards, we can discuss everything. You can't say that it's an invalid point because I reached that point through a serious research and through looking at objective data. Even when I'm reaching a conclusion that is personal, you can argue with that, but you can't argue with the data. That's, that's actually one of the issues that I, that I have today with things like you know, critical race theory and stuff like that, those are conceptual frameworks. And in the conversation, sometimes they get taken as objective truth. Well, it's got theory in the name, um, which yeah. is a good clue to the right. fact that it's meant to be a theory. I think we have lots of different kinds of theories. Right. That, yeah, I, I think you're totally right. I, I don't know how it got to be that we confuse theory for truth, but... Yeah, that's that's part of why we get into these terrible. It, you know, acts of racism are fact. I mean, they happen. You know, right. and, and you can you can study them and you can count them and you can now interpreting that as part of a historical struggle of the oppressed against the uh, oppressors or whatever framing CRT uses. It's it's an interpretation of those facts that could have different interpretations. Right. I mean, it's. I think you could just think about also just postmodernism, right, as a theory and the notion that that everything hinges on power in right, the world, right? right? Or Marxism, everything hinges on capital or come up with any theory you want. Everything hinges on gender. The whole world can be seen through the lens of this one thing. 
that's a totalizing theory. And what I learned from my rabbi Yitz Greenberg is yeah. totalizing theories and utopias are a recipe for a disaster. The world is right. a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, I, I really appreciate the way Brett um, Stevens thinks about this because I have now heard him on stage or on podcasts, and, you know, or even in writing, you know, he does this column with uh, in, Gail in Collins, the New York Times. Gail right, Collins, in the New yeah. York Times, um, where they're disagreeing. Um, but when he gets up on stage, I saw him debate Peter Beinart, right? And he starts by saying, like, I don't agree with most of the things that you say, but I respect your thinking. Like, I really... Yeah want to debate somebody who is really smart, even if I really disagree with you. And that's been a standard that we've tried to have in Sapir is right. whatever the outcome is going to be. And it's and it, let me also just say, like, it's not like we're publishing things that are all over the place in terms of viewpoint. We do have kind of a, I think a broad, that, I, like centrist frame, but, right. but, the, but the criteria is not what's your answer. The criteria, I would think, is how did you get there? How'd you arrive right. at that? And what you say about the center is, I think it's important because I think that giving a voice to the center, like I was saying before, that the extremes hijack the conversation. And 80% of the Jewish community is somewhere in the middle. They don't fully buy either extreme and they want to be challenged by ideas. And they and I think it behooves on us to sort of reclaim the conversation from the extremes. And I think that that's probably one of the great contributions of, of Sapir. And, and I think that... Having viewpoint diversity does not necessarily imply that there are no limits to community. Like a community has limits. A community has normative right. positions. There's a difference between academia, that it's, it needs to look at all the possible sources of truth because its goal is to look for the truth. A community's goal is not to look for the truth, is to right. you know generate meaning, identity, transmit something to the next generation. So in that sense, we're totally fine to say this or that idea, you know, doesn't belong with us. That doesn't mean that you can't talk about it, but you know, that's how we define the limits of our own community. That it's okay for institutions to have values that they right. promulgate. And it's funny, I think, you know, whenever you take it out of a Jewish frame and you put it onto something else, like is it okay for your Catholic school to hire teachers who are going to talk about how much they love abortion in class, like you would say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course they shouldn't have to do that. But somehow it's now a lawsuit for a synagogue religious school not to want to have a, a Zionist synagogue right. to not want to have a teacher who is an avowed, explicit anti-Zionist. In another context, I don't know that we would see it as, as so complicated, but somehow in the Jewish community, we're still tying ourselves into knots about this like unwillingness to have values and to stand up for something. That's why the yeah. second issue of Sapir was about power right. in a way, because we were trying to like Give people a little koa, a little strength, like to Jews say. Are, can... Jews are historically uneasy with power. You analyze a lot of proposals, and especially with the, the recent grants that were grants, you know, aimed at sort of imagining the post-pandemic future. What do you think are the uh, emerging themes you know, for the post-pandemic Jewish community. And and by the way, you also have the, the issue of Sapira about the philanthropic moonshots. Like between this constellation of things, is a picture emerging of how people are thinking about the future now? I don't think there's a picture emerging. I do have a lot of thoughts about what the future, like things that I'm seeing. There's no doubt that the pandemic broke a lot of things. Just think about a synagogue, for example. 
people were maybe going to synagogue, most people not going to synagogue, but they were a member of a synagogue and they would show up for a certain time, whatever. And then they would think, I don't really like this. I should really switch synagogues. The pandemic gave them 100% permission to never set foot in that synagogue again. Why would you pay your dues if you're not showing up? You know, you can watch services, you know, on the couch, you know, in your pajamas, and we'll see how long people continue to want to do that. I don't know. Um, But it sort of broke like the instinct. It broke the tie that people had. I think it broke a lot of ties. Like it broke the, the tie you had to some of your friends and even to your, maybe to your family or. He broke inertia rather. Right. That's exactly it. Like you did it because you just were already on that track and it was too hard to quit. And so you just kept doing it. Now you have sort of everything open to you, including not including doing nothing. And I think we have a challenge ahead of us to re-articulate the value of Jewish institutions and Jewish life. Now, that's like in, in one vein of Jewish life. On the other hand, you had day schools which pretty much never closed and were in many places, many town cities, the only school that was actually open with kids in person. That led to an increase in the number of people sending their kids to day school because people want to send their kids to school in person. And we'll see if that started a long-term trend, maybe, of having been able to articulate the value of going to a Jewish day school. So some things will be up, some things will be down, but what's definitely true is that, is that something broke? It was like a heart attack, right? Like for a, a period of time, which hopefully now is over, everything just stopped and, and broke. Now, the good part about that is that it forced innovation on everybody. You know, even the least willing to innovate synagogue or institution had to innovate if it was going to continue through the pandemic, especially through lockdowns. I just don't know that all those innovations are going to hold. And you have this question of, you know, do people really want to go to synagogue in their pajamas? Like maybe we need to re-articulate the value of in-person experiences. And also now we see the value of some things online. So I keep hearing parents say this, like, I never want to go to another parent-teacher conference night in person, you know, running around the building and six minutes here in this room, and then you have to go two hallways away. And so much easier to do that online. So some things for sure, you know, will stay online. Yeah, it's going to change probably the nature or the job description of many community professionals. Yes. Like all of a sudden, when you were, you know, as you said, watching services in your pajamas on your couch, you could actually listen to Angela Buchdahl or Sharon Browse. You weren't really uh, tied to your neighborhood rabbi, whom you may love him or her, but you, yep. you had access to. So the question is, does now your neighborhood rabbi need to compete with Sharon Browse or David Wolpe or <laughs> needs to redefine her job as to say, I'm going to be a curator of that material for my congregants and I'm going to be the place where they meet with other congregants and we can even watch it together and and see how it affects us. In other words, that, that is not something that they were used to do. They were used to come up with the content themselves. Right. And and also there are so many other things, like maybe content, high level content can be delivered virtually, but a funeral can't be. And right, right, you know, right, thank right, right. God the, like the community aspect of, of it 
taking much care more. of each other when you're sick and even just singing and praying together. Right. You know, I think a lot of people will also go back to the place they didn't like that much just because they were, they're able to be with the people that they know there. But yeah, I think there will be like this reshuffling, you know. It's, it's kind of interesting. It's as if the high level content gets commoditized and the personal experience you can never commoditize. So the people that are going to be best are those that can really do the personal connection better, the personal experience better. Because right. like that's the piece that you can never that you can download. What I'm hoping is that the next few years, you know, I, I think it's you know, we talk about creative destruction, right? Like yeah. we've had this moment that destroyed a lot of things. So now is the time to really foster creativity. Right. And maybe we can finally let some things that were just not working, let them go, really invest energy and resources yeah. in building new things. Yeah. That for me is the a little bit the the dark side of the fantastic philanthropic response that we had during COVID, I mean, mm. which is also a topic for another podcast, but mm. there was, a, I mean, the philanthropic community mentioned J.Criff, but J.Criff was just one piece of the pie. The community stepped up. Yeah. So it was great because then Jewish institutions did not collapse. They suffered, yep. but they didn't collapse. But the other side of that is that that creative destruction that you were talking about didn't really happen to the extent that it should have or could have. You could hypothesize that it didn't happen in the last two years, but that it might be ahead of us. So I think, you know, for example, loans, right, we're able to keep some organizations from going out of business in the last two years. But that doesn't mean that they have a membership base to draw on in the future. And we'll we'll see. I think this is like a, you know, it's a 10 year story, not a a two year. And we're seeing the mergers and, you know, we're we're seeing them now, actually, after the worst of the pandemic, hopefully behind us. So to to finish this in a more hopeful or aspirational tone, how is the community that you that you would like to see? Like now you're in a position where you can really impact the community. If you could wave a magic wand, what what would you have? What is the community that you would have? What is the community that you would like to see? Well, it touches on so many of the themes that we were talking about. It a community of people who care about each other, who are inclusive, like respect difference of all kinds, recognizing that the Jewish people is a very diverse people and always has been. Um, A community that's engaged with the world around us. I mean, another thing that I thought a lot about during the pandemic was really feeling very extremely lucky, you know, to have a safe home and that my kids would be well taken care of and that they had a good education, even if they weren't in person, realizing really the extent of the blessings that I had and that many of us have and really feeling a stronger sense of responsibility than ever to try to help make those kinds of blessings available for everybody. And a community that really takes Jewish information, Jewish knowledge, Jewish content, text, history seriously. So you can't, you mentioned Twitter a while ago. People are getting their information from Twitter and and from Instagram and that's not learning. And You can't, we're, we're seeing the downside of that, like debates about Israel that are happening over Instagram, like that's not a debate about Israel. That's just right. a yelling back and forth and a sharing obnoxious pictures or something. So, so a community that's deeply engaged in Jewish content. And I would hope that really where everybody sees themselves as a lifelong learner, because there is this incredible treasure trove that you can dive into in a thousand different ways 
that will keep you busy for your entire life, you know, in an engaging way. It's a community that, although um, it's able to communicate virtually, it is a community that's focused in being in person, that realizes the value of human beings face-to-face in three dimensions in real life. Um, So I look at this, you know, we saw some grant applications for virtual reality, and and I'm sure that sounds like a, you know, someone will do that, and that's a good thing, you know, but but that's not human beings. It's not the way human beings are wired to interact with each other, and we need to be in person. We need to be in our offices and in our synagogues and in each other's homes and at summer camps and schools, and it is a community that that is brave and that is free, so where no one feels constrained about what they can say. Um, It doesn't mean everyone's going to agree with you or that you're going to get the job or keep the job, but you are free to say what you believe and that you feel courageous and and brave. You know, if you talk about the current experience of anti-Semitism in the world and anti-Israel sentiment in the world, we need to have a lot of courage and and a lot of pride and and, uh, strength behind what it means to be Jewish in the world, what it has meant in the past, what it means today, our connections to other Jews around the world, and a sense of responsibility for them, and and a real sense of, like, we need to be courageous in a world that doesn't always like us, and we need to stand up for ourselves and for each other. Thank God we also have, you know, the state of Israel to do that in a actually technical kind of a way right. um, with a military and all of that. But but even just in terms of mutual aid and responsibility and care, we need to, it's a community that cares about each other and the world around it. Amen to that. <laughs> and history and a community that cares about archives. <laughs> and that gives, you know, that that is generous and that where everybody realizes their own assets, what they bring to the world, and they can share those with the rest of the world. I have a lot of things, a lot of mantras to, to share. <laughs> they're all they're all good. So thank you. That was really good. Thanks for having me. It was super fun. Thanks so much to Felicia Herman. You can read her latest article and a lot of other great stuff in Sapir at sapirjournal.org. And you can learn more about Jewish giving circles at amplifiergiving.org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. So write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at atspokoini. I leave you now with a quote from Mother Teresa, who said, We only know too well that what we are doing is nothing more than a drop in the ocean. But if the drop were not there, the ocean would be missing something. So keep adding your own drops to the ocean, keep giving, and join us next time on What Gives.